Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Jabbar. This week is time running out for Colonel Gaddafi. There seems to be a noose appearing around Tripoli. I think it might be the start of the end game. Success to me looks like a democratic Libya capable of looking after itself. And building Afghanistan's economy, the struggle to contain corruption. It's very difficult to altogether eliminate the bribery and corruption in Afghanistan. BFBS. Headlines. Rebels are claiming to have taken control of the oil refinery outside the Libyan town of Zawiya. A reporter there says the rebels have forced Colonel Gaddafi's forces out of the area. If confirmed, the capture of the refinery would be a big boost for rebel forces, who say it's a key strategic target. Opponents of President Assad in Syria say his claim that to have halted military operations against activists is false. Syrian television shown troops and tanks pulling out of cities. Opposition activists say protesters are still being killed. A fourth man's appeared before magistrates charged with the murders of three people hit by a car during last week's riots in Birmingham. Ian Beckford will appear before Birmingham Crown Court either tomorrow or on Monday. Police investigating phone hacking have arrested a former journalist at the News of the World. The 38-year-old is the 13th to be arrested so far. And there have been reports of serious flash flooding in Dorset. Bournemouth is the worst affected area with gardens in the town centre underwater. Fire crews have been called out multiple times. For more than four decades, Muammar Gaddafi has held power in Libya in the face of international condemnation and even the occasional military strike. But this week, the uprising against him has edged even closer to the capital, with rebels advancing on the vital town of Zawiya, encircling Tripoli in a move that's led to some to suggest Gaddafi will soon be forced out. The conflict in Libya has been deadlocked for weeks despite the continuing operation by NATO forces. But now Britain's most senior military spokesman says we may be in the end game. Major General Nick Pope spoke to our reporter Kaya Lark. It's important not to necessarily be too optimistic uh, and, and to overplay the, the situation too much because we've, we've been there before in a way. But I think the difference now is this feeling that you're seeing um, the former regime losing its access to supply routes into Tunisia. You see signs of um, defections from Tripoli. You see signs of civilians leaving Tripoli. So I think there is definite signs of movement, yes. He'll still retain some military capability and the ability to deal tactically with an issue might still be uh, under his control but on a sustained basis. We've denied him the capability to move forward in that kind of warfare. But the NATO mandate runs out at the end of September. Is there more pressure now to wrap this up quickly? I think the, the words that the Prime Minister and the Secretary of State have both used um, are to the extent. This is patience and persistence. From a military perspective, uh, we continue as part of a coalition to uh, do exactly what the uh, UNSCR says on the tin, which is to protect the civilian population. And what does success look like in Libya? I think success to me looks like uh, a, a democratic Libya, self-governing, self-determined and capable of looking after itself. Some analysts are saying this is the start of the end game, is it? I think it might be the start of the end game, absolutely. Uh, and so the attention of the international community and um, 
the National Transitional Council in uh, Libya itself need to turn now to how this, this end game actually manifests itself. And we've seen, for instance, signs from the National Transitional Council in, in Libya of a draft constitution. We've seen um, recognition of the NTC by many countries across the world and embassies across the world transforming from former regime to National Transitional Council. So the building blocks are being put in place to enable transition and an end game to happen. When people are tweeting things very quickly, when things are appearing on Facebook that you might otherwise wish weren't, is this another kind of battle that you're having to fight now against the social media? I think it's a really new modern phenomenon this and it's um, I think there's a soundbite produced by somebody who said that Sadat was brought down by an assassin's bullet, Saddam was brought down by a hangman's noose, Musharraf was brought down by Facebook and that really summarizes to me uh, the modern information battle space. It's immediate, um, it's, un it's cluttered, it's ungoverned and the ability to put information, non-verifiable information into the public domain is, um, is, is immediate. What we saw in the riots in, in UK by way of example a week ago was this absolute situation of people tweeting, people Facebooking. But there was a backlash to it because people recognised after the event that a lot of the information put on was simply not true. So you have this conflict of interest, the desire to get your information first into the battle space, in this case the information domain, versus the need for accurate information. And that's, that's a, a, a very, very fine balance we are still working our way through. What's the impact of running two operations of this scale at the same time? I think you could say we are very busy right now um, and continue to be very busy. Uh, but the point that the Secretary of State and the Chief of Defence Staff have made over the last couple of months is that we will continue to sustain both operations for as long as it takes. Um, I would just point to the enormous professionalism of the forces on the ground, be it in Afghanistan or over the airs of Libya or in the seas around Libya, in conducting those operations. Major General Nick Pope. Well, to discuss the situation in Libya, I'm joined by Oliver Miles, a former British ambassador to the country. Hello to you, Oliver. Hello. Um, the general there says we may be in the end game in Libya. Is he right? Yes, I agreed with what he said, including his reservations. Uh, nobody can foresee the future, and my expectation is that, that this will end, as the poet said, not with a bang, but with a whimper. Uh, there isn't going to be a battle of Tripoli to, 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 f to finish it all off. What's going to happen, I think, is some kind of political deal as a result of which Gaddafi will go, either from Libya or at least from power. And I think we won't know very much about that until it actually happens, because these negotiations are much better conducted privately. And how significant is this move to cut off the supply route to Tripoli? Well, it certainly is significant. It's been going on for some time. I'm not quite sure whether the latest uh, announcement, which is the cutting the pipeline between Zawiya and uh, Tripoli, is, is very important for, for the reason that Zawiya refinery has been operating, if, if at all, at a very low level for some time, and Zawiya's supplies have been mainly cut off because they were coming by sea, which they no longer do, and they were coming by pipeline from the oil fields uh, in the southwest of Libya, and those have been cut off for some time. So this is just one extra um, stroke, if you like, one extra brick in the wall, but it is a wall and they're building it up. Anecdotally, though, the situation on the ground in Tripoli, we have heard people saying that things are getting more difficult, it's more difficult to get petrol fuel supplies. How long could the city hold out in isolation? 
very difficult to say. I presume that, that the we've been hearing about pet shortage of petrol for a long time, almost since the beginning of the troubles, but I presume that's largely because the military will have commandeered the stocks for their use um, and uh, the, the civilians will have been um, kept kept very, very short. And that's certainly been one of the main complaints of, of civilians in, uh, in Benghazi. I don't, I don't know. For example, um, it's being said that the cutting this um, pipeline will mean that the power stations will no longer be able to operate. And if that were true, that would be very serious indeed, because it would mean that water and sewage and everything else would, would, uh, would grind to a halt. But I believe they can actually maintain power supplies with gas as, as opposed to oil. And I don't think, so far as I know, gas uh, supplies have been cut off. So it's possible that the civilian population will be able to continue to get by. They'll, they'll certainly be suffering. Well, also with me today is BFBS's defence analyst Christopher Lee. Uh, Christopher, Nick Pope said also that the noose is tightening around Tripoli. But if Gaddafi were to fall, is the National Transitional Council in your opinion up to the job of, of governing Libya? There's not many people who would be able to take a bet on that. Um, people I talk to say, yet again, uh, his, uh, when Nick Pope says this is a new modern phenomenon, etc., history tells you that the people that you brought in, and by defending as we have been defending, we are effectively supporting the idea of putting them in, may not be what he calls the democratic Libya that everybody was rather hoping for. Um, they, to go into a country and take it over when there has been opposition, you do not do it as if you were running a town council. And I think that's the great fear, and it should be the fear, especially of people like the Foreign Secretary, William Hague, who sort of signed up for this. And Oliver, do you think the National Transitional Council is up to it? I think the signs are good. I think they're, they're, they've got a, a team which is well respected. Um, they've been saying the right things. They've been talking about uh, being, particularly they've been talking about being inclusive. They're not excluding people because they they were supporters of Gaddafi. If they, as they've recognised, if they did that, they'd have to risk to exclude half the population of Libya or more than half the population of Libya. Uh, they're not uh, going to exclude anybody, they say, except those who, against whom there are accusations of criminal behaviour, which I think mainly means bloodshed, although it could also mean, mean corruption. Now, of course, what they say now is not necessarily what they're going to do or what they're going to be able to do. It's going to be a very, very difficult job, as, as um, your other commentator Christopher Lee was, was, was saying. It'll be very difficult indeed, but at least they've been saying the right things. And I think mm. there have been some rather misleading reports from outside. I keep seeing reports that um, there are Islamist, if not um, extremist, um, Al-Qaeda types mixed up in the National Transitional Council. I, I personally have seen no evidence of that. I don't uh, believe it. Yeah, on that note, um, there has been some reporting that uh, military figures unnamed and Western diplomats have raised the prospect that should the rebels gain power and Gaddafi fall imminently, that the situation, it could be the worst thing to happen because there could be violent retribution, infighting, putting the civilians at greater risk. I thought that was a most peculiar um, comment. It was in one of the Murdoch papers. I don't know why. Um, I don't agree with it. Christopher, um, NATO's mandate is coming to an end. Do you think it will need to be renewed? And if so, will it? Um, depends where we are with, with, with this confrontation. Don't forget that the 1973, the United Nations resolution, basically said that it was an authority to go and defend the people of Libya from, I think I'm right in this, from the Libyan government of Gaddafi. If Gaddafi ain't there, 
then what are they going to do with the resolution? I imagine they'll have to go back to something else. Uh, what we have to watch for, and that is that if the new, for example, the Transitional Council asked for military support in Libya, would that be a sign that we might have that dreadful expression, boots on the ground, rearing its head again? But the truth is, when people talk about the end game, what we've really got to think about is the end game really is what happens after. And that's what we really don't know. Oliver, your comments on that? Yes, I agree with that. I'm not so sure about the, the, the resolution. I think the, the uh, mandate which speaks of protection of civilians is not time-limited, but I, I agree that I don't expect um, NATO activity to continue after there's a, a political deal which, or, or a, some kind of uh, coup de main which, which effectively removes Gaddafi, and that's what I'm expecting, uh, either a political deal or a coup de main, one or the other. Um, but, so I think that uh, after that, yes, the Libyans are on their own. I think boots on the ground are most unlikely. I would have thought it would be extremely unpopular in uh, Britain and France and um, unpopular in Libya as well. All right, Oliver Miles, thank you very much for your time today. Well, the British fighter jets involved in that NATO operation over Libya are based in Gioia del Colle in southern Italy. James Hurst has spent some time there and has this report. Some 600 miles from Tripoli is the hub of Britain's operation to protect Libyan civilians. Right now there are 16 RAF tornadoes and six typhoons based here. For the typhoon, this operation has been a coming of age. I got more flying in the first five days that I was out here than I would normally in a month back in the UK. Squadron leader Chris Moon, executive officer of 3 Squadron, is one of the pilots. It's very demanding, but in terms of the results we're having on the ground, protecting the Libyan civilians, and we're all very proud and privileged to be taking part in it. From here, it's pretty much down to one person, the pilot, to complete this mission. But to get to this point with the plane in the air and on its way takes an awful lot more people. Yes, that's good. In a hangar away from the heat of the sun, weapons technicians like Corporal Owen Watkins ready the Typhoon's missiles and Paveway 2 bombs before takeoff. We load it onto an ejection unit, electrically connect it and load GPS. You make sure you check everything twice, if not three times, but, yeah, we've been doing it plenty of times out here now, so uh, we're all quite used to what we're doing. This has been the first big test for the RAF Typhoon. So far, it's passed. The tornadoes that fly alongside the Typhoons are much older. They survived the Defence Review last autumn, but they will be phased out over the next few years. However, air and ground crews say the planes are proving they are still up to the dual job of delivering strikes and gathering intelligence. Well, the jet's very well set up for dealing with things very quickly. Pilots like Flight Lieutenant Mark Tolman from 2 Squadron have targeted Colonel Gaddafi's military infrastructure with brimstone missiles and Paveway 4 bombs, at times intervening in fighting on the ground. We saw actual rocket launchers streaking across and landing in Misrata, which is the point we are then there for. We can weaponeer individually against these vehicles very, very precisely and make sure we take out them when the plane gets back, it carries with it a valuable cargo which it didn't have when it left. Information and intelligence which the pilot brings here to the tactical imagery wing. Inside this office, video and 3D still images from Raptor and Lightning pods are studied for vital information. Image analyst Corporal Taz Hetherington says the results are key for picking targets and helping minimise the risk of civilian casualties. We're going to identify uh, people whether they're carrying weapons as possibly to identify if the imagery is good enough for weapons on vehicles. But also, it's good for identifying for targets with buildings. We can actually identify the sizes of buildings, how many windows they've got. And while that intelligence is analysed, ground crews are already at work on the plane that's just returned.
Two Squadron Senior Engineering Officer Squadron Leader Phil Layton showed me how at least two hours of routine maintenance is needed for each tornado, sometimes more. The aircraft has come back with a reported uh, engine problem, so the guys as part of the fault diagnosis will come out to run the engines to make sure that all the sequencing is actually correct and all the operations and indications are normal. If serious problems are found, an engine can be taken off the plane and stripped down in a hangar. It's our fifth engine in uh, the two months I've been out here. Corporal Stephen Berry is one of two people from the deployed propulsion support team working here. We've pretty much got the same capability out here as what we do at home. Obviously time restraints and manpower is our limiting factor out here. The planes are flying around the clock and so the engineers that keep them airworthy are working around the clock pattern too. It's it's certainly the cumulative fatigue is the main issue and it's just making sure that they retain that focus and concentration. The spirit, morale, everything else is massively buoyant. For the men and women of 2 Squadron, the heavy workload is almost over. They're about to be replaced and head home after more than four months flying missions from Joya del Colle. The officer commanding 2 Squadron, Wing Commander Nick Tuckerlow, thinks they leave Libya a better place. When I first turned up, we saw the siege of Misrata. Now I've looked down into Misrata and can see that there are market stalls. This is a fundamental change. Wing Commander Nick Tucker Lowe ending that report by James Hurst. Sit rep with Kate Still to come this week, how millions in aid from Britain could be going into the Taliban's pockets and the secret plot to turn Adolf Hitler into a woman. More details have emerged about the cost of building Britain's two new aircraft carriers, vessels the government had said it didn't even want. Crucially, the decision to switch from the hovering version of the Joint Strike Fighter to the more potent carrier version has made the project even more expensive. Our reporter, Will Inglis, has been to check on the progress on the HMS Queen Elizabeth, due to be launched in three years' time. He started by telling me about the latest work. Large sections are, have actually already been built. I was in Govan this week and got the chance to get inside one of the blocks under construction there. And was, I've got to say, it was truly fantastic. Good old-fashioned heavy industry. There were sparks flying, Glaswegians smacking things with hammers. I got to nose around one of the accommodation blocks on board. I can't tell you how luxurious it might be at the moment. It's a, a little austere, lots of grey metal, but there will eventually be cabins and the like. Now, the ship is being built in sections all around the country, and the biggest yet is currently on its way to Resyth, where final assembly should actually start next month. So how will changing the type of plane affect her? Well, the new plane doesn't hover like the one the ship was designed around. It needs to launch from a catapult and land on a rest gear, cats and traps. We do know, though, that it's too late to fiddle that onto the Queen Elizabeth before she's completed. I asked the boss of BAE surface ships, Mick Ord, if that means she'll be finished to the original design, just maybe without the Harrier-style ski ramp on the front. Yeah, that'll probably be the uh, most likely outcome for the Queen Elizabeth. We're building it to the original specification. And like I say, when the Ministry of Defence decides what does it want to do for cats and traps, then we'll adjust the programme accordingly. But the second ship will definitely work with the Joint Strike Fighter. Well, HMS Prince of Wales is also under construction already, but things are at such an early stage that the cats and traps can be included from the beginning. An 18-month study should report at the end of next year on exactly what that will involve. We do know, though, that the equipment itself will come from General Atomics. It'll be a cut-down version of the kit going on to the next generation of American carriers. But the equipment alone is going to set the UK back around a billion pounds per ship. John Ward is in charge of converting the ships for the Aircraft Carrier Alliance of Shipyards. They're building the vessels. We're having to take uh, a very high-end technology, electromagnetic catapults, and integrate it into a full electric propulsion ship with all the issues around design and redesign 
so it's going to be a significant challenge. Okay, so, so can anything be done to get cats and traps onto HMS Queen Elizabeth? Well, government policy at the moment is that she be left unconverted. She'll be finished all bar the ability to operate fast jets and then be mothballed straight away. The only alternative is to refit her when she's finished, to, to cut large parts out of the ship and install this billion pounds worth of catapults and so on at some later date, at some later refit. Defence Minister Gerald Howarth was also in government this week. I met him and asked about the decision to change aircraft type. We think that um, because the, the uh, carrier variant of the Joint Strike Fighter delivers twice the payload and 40% more range, that's the right decision uh, to take and therefore delaying this programme uh, for a, a short space of time, but delivering greater capability is the is the answer. As things stand, you know the SCSR says that the, one of the ships will be mothballed. Um, the least capable will be the first. It will be a shame for this this great structure here to end up slowly rusting in the inner basin in Portsmouth. And of, of course it would. And um, unfortunately, the SDSR was partly the product of uh, the uh, disastrous state of the public finances, which we inherited from uh, Gordon Brown's stewardship of the British economy. Uh, we would have been in the same boat as Greece and Ireland and, and, and um, Portugal had it not been for the urgent action taken by uh, uh, the Chancellor of the Exchequer to put Britain's public finances back in order. The trouble is that if the UK government ever wants to use the HMS Queen Elizabeth as an aircraft carrier, it'll cost a billion to buy the equipment and more to fit it. That's on top of the estimated £6.2 billion already being spent on the two ships, and it's going to take the final bill for both to approaching the £8 billion mark. That's roughly double the original estimate. Willing list there. Well, our defence analyst Christopher Lee is still with us. Uh, Christopher, when are we going to see an end to these financial horror stories? We won't for the moment, and I'll tell you why. The Pentagon plans to buy 2,443 F-35s, is what we're basically talking about. They also fear the fact that they may be getting, that's the Pentagon, a 1.2 trillion, trillion, not billion, trillion dollar defence budget cut and one of the items to be cut, the aeroplane that we want to buy. So it could simply just get worse and worse, could it? It may not get better. Put right. it that way. All right, Christmas, stay with us. NATO officials in Afghanistan keep insisting they're making progress against the Taliban as the 2014 deadline for the end of Britain's combat operations draws nearer. But this week saw a different target, a meeting of top-level security officials at a provincial governor's compound north of Kabul. More than 20 people were killed in insurgent strike there. In Helmand, one rifles lost one of their platoon commanders, Lieutenant Dan Clack. But Sergeant Barry Welsh insists they are making progress with locals. They're still talking to us. They're still trying to interact with us. They're telling us where the IEDs are. And they are openly telling us where the insurgents are. They don't want this fighting anymore. They've had enough of it. But a new report's warning the military progress could be futile unless there's much more work to strengthen Afghanistan's government. It was carried out by the International Crisis Group, which lobbies governments on ways to prevent and end conflict. Earlier I spoke to Candice Rondo, its senior analyst, who's in Kabul, and I started by asking her about the bribery problem. I think it would be very difficult to altogether eliminate the bribery and corruption in Afghanistan, as in any other place, uh, you know, you can name them. Sudan, Somalia, they all have very similar problems. Uh, the biggest problem being that, you know, you have an extremely centralized government here um, that does not really want to relinquish its power nor its financial power um, to the provinces. So, 
even if contractors, international contractors, were able to get their ducks in a row, clean up their practices, there's still no guarantee that the money that they do stream to Afghan government agencies and ministries um, actually all goes to the place that it needs to. I think there will always be a certain amount of wastage here. We hear from the military all the time that the actual reconstruction programs that they're carrying out are, are paying dividends, that they're being successful. What's your judgment on those as far as the British are concerned? Well, it's difficult to say. You know, I, I think that you, you do have to make a distinction between all of the different military actors here. Some seem to understand better than others um, how to look forward uh, maybe five, ten years from now as to how a project may affect a given community. And some just seem to do a very good job of cultivating relationships with local brokers uh, and political actors on the ground and at the province level. And so that, I think, is often, oftentimes the best measure of success is how well those relationships are built. However, I think the one thing that is, of course, very important to note is that um, having the military, whether it's the British or the U.S., uh, set the sort of policy guidelines for what development looks like is very, very dangerous because you often tie um, the outcome of these projects to what is seen as a sort of security increases, if you will. And those things are, are very difficult to measure. Uh, and I think they're often very temporary, uh, and oftentimes they are more indicative of uh, a stronger military presence in a given area than they are the success of a given development project. In that light, then, do you think it's right to set this deadline for the withdrawal of combat troops? The deadline, of course, was bound to happen at some stage or another. Politically, I think it's made things very difficult on the national level. Uh, it has really increased pressure for everybody to kind of produce results very quickly, uh, and yet, there still, 10 years later, isn't very much agreement on how to do that. Uh, I also think that, you know, for the Afghan government, uh, it has been a wake-up call. Uh, you do see some improvements, particularly at the municipal level in cities like Kabul and, and Jalalabad, Herat. The, the deadline has been uh, kind of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, delivering an imperative political one for, for the Afghan government to finally um, get itself together uh, and begin doing the work that it's supposed to do. Uh, on the other hand, I think also increasing pressure and raising uh, fears that, in fact, uh, the withdrawal may uh, result in collapse of the government. Candice Rondo from the International Crisis Group. This week, we've learned about some of the outlandish and downright bizarre ideas British spies came up with to try to defeat Hitler during World War II. They include raining poisonous snakes down on Nazi troops, gluing them to the ground, and even attempt to give Adolf Hitler female hormones in the hope he'd become less aggressive. These creative solutions were uncovered by Professor Brian Ford of Cardiff University, and he's on the line now. Good to talk to you, Professor Ford. Um, Good afternoon to you. Let's start with that last idea turning her Hitler into Mrs Hitler. You can't be serious, can you? Uh, well, no, I'm not serious, but they certainly were. I must say that the idea was that you would give Hitler a big dose of oestrogen and as time went by, he would slowly change into a quiet and compliant little lady. That was the notion. I have to say that... How I'm far not... did it get, then? Oh, it got to feasibility. Not only that, but we actually had the agents available who could have got it into his food. I mean, the first idea was to poison Hitler, you know. Um, but he had it, tasters, so that wouldn't have worked. Exactly. Uh, but the tasters would change every few weeks, you see. So although that wouldn't have worked, what would have worked would have been to pop 
oestrogen in because that would build up over months. So the tasters would not notice <laughs> the difference, but Hitler would. Although I do have to say, and I know I'm talking to a woman presenter when I say this, so <laughs> you're better qualified than anybody. But is it certain that doses of oestrogen necessarily stop people being aggressive? Well, that's it, what I, I'm just thinking that some of our audience who might be listening uh, <laughs> out in Afghanistan who are female might take an issue with this idea. I, I, I think so, yes. Uh, I certainly hadn't met some of the women I've met who ever thought of that. <laughs> Uh, but yes, uh, I like the glue bombs that you just drop yeah, a line Yeah, tell me a bit of... more about that then. Well, you just drop bombs of glue in front of the advancing troops and the result was that they'd all be stuck to the ground so they couldn't walk any further. Isn't that neat? It, it, it sounds wonderful. It would be a wonderful... I imagine the adverts today if it had ever got to fruition. Um, <laughs> there, there is a serious side to all this, isn't there? Uh, that coming... These kind of weird and wonderful ideas actually do come up with technological advances. Yes, they do. And we tend to dismiss these ideas because of being, you know... They're nutty because they didn't work, and when we look back at them, they seem crazy. But lots and lots of other ideas seemed pretty crazy at the time, and people were against them. Like the idea of growing a bit of um, mouldy old mildew that somebody had once discovered on a, de- a pile of decaying herbs in Scandinavia and getting a super drug out of it. Well, that became penicillin. And what about the silly notion of having a sort of metal tube with a fan at both ends, burning a spray of petrol to blow a plane along through the air instead of using propellers? And that became a jet. So we cannot possibly say that all of these ideas that seemed nutty were nutty. The ones that were nutty are the ones that we found out now didn't work. Yes, indeed, and that perhaps would have been seen very differently in the light of history. Is there anything particular apart from the... I mean, we've all jumped on these particular ideas. Anything that stood out to you apart from that? Yes, well, I mean, I will mention one, because I know that a military audience would like this. I'll mention one that isn't in my book, because I really couldn't harden up the fact that it had been that seriously considered. But it was the notion that you would actually uh, give German agents cigarettes that contained a drug that would cause whoever smoked the cigarette to have a terrible headache. And in their pocket, they'd have a little glass bottle labelled in English aspirin tablets, but actually containing cyanide. So they, <laughs> they, they, would, they would sidle up to these senior officers, uh, offer them a cigarette, and then say, oh, you've got a headache? Hang on a moment. Would you like to swallow <laughs> one of these aspirin tablets? And, <laughs> and, and hand over what was actually cyanide. Professor Ford, there we must lead it. It's been great talking to you. and My mind is boggling with conspiracy theories. Thanks for your time today. Pleasure. Uh, uh, Christopher, your thoughts on this? Um, well, I, was, uh, I, I did a survey when I was at Langley, 638 attempts by the CIA to blow up, assassinate Castro, uh, exploding cigars, etc., all to be carried out by the mob, the mafia, so they could get back the gambling industry. Marvellous, ain't it? It certainly is. And the old boy's still around. (laughs) Indeed, Christopher, good to speak to you. Thanks to all of our guests today. We're back, as usual, at the same time next week. If you want to get in contact, it's sitrep at bfbs.com. Don't forget our website, bfbs.com slash sitrep. Thanks very much for listening. Bye-bye for now. This is Sit Rep on BFBS.